entering the Freedom Hut. It's week two of the 15 days to stop the spread. We have updates about our fight against COVID-19, the Wuhan virus. We'll talk about not just the risks of this pandemic to our health, but also to our economy. We've got a number of U.S. senators in quarantine. One senator already has been positive for it. We'll talk about what happens next and where we're going coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Those worried and afraid, please know as long as I am your president, you can feel confident that you have a leader who will always fight for you, and I will not stop until we win. This will be a great victory. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. The president trying to reassure us that it's all going to be okay. I think it is going to be okay, but we have some big decisions to make, not just in the months ahead, but in fact, In the weeks ahead, we have decisions that we will have to make about whether or not we allow this virus to fundamentally transform our economy, really to destroy our economy. And that's going to be one of my main focuses today. The president also tweeted out that we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. At the end of the 15 day period, we'll make a decision as to which way we want to go. Look, I've been advocating here that the end of the, that, that the 15 day period is something we should all try to adhere to as much as we can. Give the government a little more time to figure out what it is that they need. Right. I've been thinking about the best ways for us in our own individual capacity to try and fight against this or prevent the spread of this. But the 15 days was supposed to be allowing the government to get prepared really to play catch up because the government lost time. And I've seen even more information now about the problem, not just with the CDC, but with the FDA. Government agencies are not capable of moving swiftly and decisively. It is, it is like against their bureaucratic DNA. If we have time, we'll get into some more of the information on that, how exactly that all fell apart. But now we've gone through a week of these extreme measures at different levels And we have all these uh, on the screens. If you're watching TV or if you're opening up the news, you look at the cases around the world, 350,000 more or less as of today, about 15,300 deaths worldwide, over 100,000 recoveries worldwide, pending cases, 230 plus thousand. That's in a population of what, seven going on eight billion people. The numbers are actually quite small. And I want to bring to your attention the most interesting analysis of this that I have seen from a true epidemiologist, uh, a person who is honestly able uh, to look at this and not be not be terrified, not not be uh, overwhelmed by the pressures of the moment and see where this is all really going. So this is something that's very important for us. The economy is falling apart right now in real time. 
I don't want to overstate this. I know we're already dealing with a lot of anxiety. We already have a lot of problems uh, with regard to unemployment. We understand that this is going to spiral out of control very quickly. But the president tweeted this out. We cannot let the cure be worse than the problem. It's at the end of the 15 day period. We'll make a decision as to which way we want to go. Okay, that means that when this 15 day period is over, America's got to go back to work. We can't do this. We simply cannot do this. It's not feasible. That's why when I hear things like uh, Governor Cuomo, who I do think is trying to be an adult about this whole situation, I think he's being responsible about this whole situation. When I hear him say this, I'm disheartened because this is not really an option. This is not really a possibility. Here's what he says. Play clip five. This is not a short-term situation. This is not a long weekend. This is not a week. Uh, the timeline, nobody can tell you. It depends on how we handle it. Uh, but 40%, up to 80% of the population will wind up getting this virus. All we're trying to do is slow the spread, but it will spread. It is that contagious. Again, that's nothing to panic over. You saw the numbers, unless you're older with an underlying illness, etc. Uh, it's something that you're going to resolve, but it's going to work its way through society. Uh, we'll manage that capacity rate, but it is going to be four months, six months, nine months. You look at China, once they really change the trajectory, which we have not done yet, uh, eight months, we're in that range. We're not in that range because we can't be. And this is what the president has woken up to this week. People who understand the economy, who understand macroeconomics or just forget about macroeconomics, just common sense. What happens when people all of a sudden, after being told they can't, they're not allowed, legally not allowed? You would be violating a state mandate of quarantine if you tried to open up your bar, open up your small business. What happens when those people feel like they're not just losing their businesses, they can't feed their families? $1,200 check from the government here, $1,200 check from the government there. That's not going to do it. That's not going to cover everyone's expenses. What happens then? The government has been so reactive to this because I do think that the press, and I'm I'm sorry, I, I wish it were not the case, but I do believe that the press is a, a portion of them are deeply pleased with the notion that now Donald Trump faces a crisis that is a real crisis, not like Russia collusion, not like the Ukraine phone call and the impeachment fiasco and all the other things they made up, you know, the emoluments clause and Trump is crazy and Trump sexually assaulted somebody in a, in a um, what do you call it, uh, a retail store, department stores, which I think of all these crazy stories you've heard. It's all nonsense. Well, this is real. And there's a lot uh, there are a lot of people in the press who like the fact that now they have a crisis that they can bash Trump with. And we'll get into this. This is real. I mean, the politics of this are becoming very apparent. And I have to tell you, I am really sick and tired of people in the media and in positions of perception authority right now. Right. Perceived authority 
whether it's to give us information or it's government officials. I've gotten really sick and tired of them saying this isn't political. And then they go on to say something grotesquely political. And I'm supposed to sit there and go, oh, okay, well, it's not political. So I'll just let them keep doing what they're doing. The dishonesty here, uh, the lack of seriousness from the left and from the libs is greatly concerning. Uh, It really is. But we have to uh, focus on on the first order business here. Yeah, of course, the, the rescue package is delayed. I'll bring you up to speed on that. Nancy Pelosi is a person of no ethics, no integrity, no honor. That's not a surprise. We all knew that. People are suffering. The working class, the Democrats pretend to care so much about are the ones who are suffering the most. They are in true fear for their livelihoods and small business owners are going to watch as everything that they've built disappears. Do you think anyone's going to write them a check for the uh, restaurant that they spent five, ten years with their own hands, late nights, tough months, scrimping, saving, doing everything they could to try to keep it going? And finally, they've got a good customer base. They've got decent cash flow. You know, maybe they're operating on five, seven percent profit margin for all all their uh, you know, all their expenses year in and year out. And that shuts down. Guess what? The government's not going to pay you for that entity. The best thing that they could possibly do is try at this point that they're talking about is trying to help you keep payroll going for a while. But you still have rent. You still have other expenses. And it's just not going to work. We all know this. So we've been so focused on is this virus going to kill all of us, basically. That's really been the perception. And the answer is no, it's not. Not even close. If we did absolutely nothing, if we were running around, high-fiving, kissing each other on the cheek constantly, uh, gathering in large numbers, going out and partying, doing what these Generation Z people, by the way, don't blame us on the millennials, Gen Z. I'm watching you down on spring break. Millennials now are... Most of them late 20s, into their 30s. A lot of them are married. A lot of them have kids. Gen Z was, I'm not letting them pull this. Gen Z were the ones that were doing shots of Soco and Lime and Jägermeister down in Clearwater and wherever else they were gathered in, uh, in Florida until they shut the beaches down there. But now is when we start to recognize we can't keep doing this. This doesn't work. The government isn't going to be able to turn the economy back on because the economy is going to be dead. And those who were saying, Buck, this is about protecting life. I, I saw there was a Cuomo line, I think from Friday, but it might have been over the weekend, that he'll be happy with all these measures if it saves just one life. No, that's a terrible idea. We accept that there are a lot of things that we don't do that would save lives, but the cost to the rest of our existence isn't worth it. The one that everyone always points to is driving, right? 30 to 40,000 fatalities from driving in the United States every year. Okay, but what are we supposed to do about that? If we drove at 20 miles an hour everywhere, there would probably be uh, hundreds instead of tens of thousands of, of vehicle fatalities, maybe a few thousand. I mean, it would cut it down. If the speed limit was strictly enforced, at 20 miles an hour, if somebody went over 20 miles an hour, you take their car away. You're going to tell me that's not going to cut down. But think about what that would be like to live. What would that mean for commerce? What would that mean for you getting home, you getting to work, you getting around? Those are trade-offs. We're going to have to have a serious adult American conversation about the trade-offs here. 
The president has talked about this in the context of it being a war. And I, I think that's a useful way to speak about this. But we must remember that in wars, there are casualties. And I know we're already taking some. And every loved one that we lose, you know, for every family where someone dies from this virus, it's a tragedy. But we also have to understand that for every family where someone dies from flu, from H1N1, from heart failure, from cancer, from accidents in and around the home, those are all tragedies, too. Just as tragic. We seem to have frightened ourselves into a corner here where we think we have to do everything and anything because we have to make sure that there is a bare minimum risk from this instead of a manageable risk from this. Those are not the same thing. If we try this bare minimum risk approach, we risk, in fact, no, we don't risk. If we continue with this bare minimum risk approach, we're going to destroy the United States economy and with it, there'll be civil disorder, riots in the streets, mass noncompliance, class warfare that actually starts to look like warfare, this is going to get really ugly. And people's livelihoods, uh, intergenerational economic destruction, all of this will occur. And it's really almost a near certainty if we continue on this current path. The government is just running on money created by us. The only reason the United States government is the powerhouse it is is because of U.S. economic activity, right? Any country can print money. The reason American money is so valuable is because of the assets, the ingenuity, the capital, human and otherwise, of the United States of America. Our industry, our commerce, our capitalism, our system. This is why people trust us to pay our bills. This is why we're the reserve currency and... We're now at risk if we continue doing this, not just on the civil disorder side, which I think is very apparent. We're also effectively going to be running an experiment that would run close to what you call modern monetary theory. I've talked to you about this before. This is the AOC far left wing Bernie Sanders economic advisor approach to an economy. Don't worry. Just write the check. Doesn't matter how big it is. Doesn't matter how big your deficit is. Whatever you want, whatever you think is a social good, write the check for it. Figure it out later. Just trying to manage, just quote, try to manage inflation, unquote, right? That's what they'll say. And this is a way, the problem with inflation is that usually when it sets in, it's very hard for governments to deal with. And if inflation gets bad quickly because the market is speaking, not just because policymakers are saying one thing or another, guess what? Then all of a sudden you could have the complete annihilation of an economy, which has happened in countries. We've seen this happen. People always talk about Weimar Republic and Germany. Look at Zimbabwe. Look at what's going on in Venezuela. These economies effectively barely exist. I mean, they're back to almost trade and barter because of what's been done to their currency. We're going to start spending a trillion dollars here, a trillion dollars there on top of $22 trillion of debt. The people who have been worried about U.S. debt being too high for decades, you were all correct. You've always been correct. How many times have I said in short segments on this show in the last year, those who, of you who have really been with me here in the hut uh, day in and day out. How many times I said, look, no one wants, no one cares, but the debt's too high. We all know it. No one cares, though. Things are good. I'm just telling you it's too high. I know people don't want to hear about it. Well, now everyone's saying, wow, it was kind of fiscally irresponsible to spend a trillion dollars when the economy was a trillion dollars more than we were taking in to run up the debt by a trillion dollars a year. That was fiscally irresponsible when things were rocking and the economy was great. 
And it was, but nobody wanted to hear it. Nobody wants to believe there's no Santa Claus, especially when there are politicians who say, oh, yeah, I'm Santa Claus. The Democrats. We can't keep doing what we are doing right now for long. Maybe, maybe we could stretch this out into the next month, maybe the middle of April. But right around what used to be known as tax day, now it's been pushed to July 15th, right around the middle of April, if we have this complete shutdown of business in place, we are looking at national, we are looking at national economic suicide. We are heading for Great Depression too. A 30% jobless rate is on the horizon. That's unsustainable, even in the short term. Can't do it. We have been through pandemics before. We have been through wars before. I think we've gotten very comfortable in America and in this society thinking that we'll never have to make the tough choices again. A tough choice is telling people to stay home. You know what's a really tough choice? Telling people that we're going to put some measures in place, but we are going to go to work and we're going to lose people to this virus, but we're also not going to allow the country to completely collapse. That is a really tough choice. That will require real leadership. And we have to push them right now to do that. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I think it's part of my duty not just to inform you about what's going on right now in the midst of this true national crisis. Uh, I also think I need to make the argument here, need to make the case about why we, we can't continue these measures And I understand there will be costs. I understand this is going to be very difficult. But I want to make the case today and this week why we're in week two of the 15 days. This is it. After this, we still practice some sensible social distancing. We still take measures to protect our vulnerable population. No question about it. Tremendous expenditure of resources at the personal and all throughout government level to protect those who are in the more vulnerable population. But a lot of the rest of us need to be told, if you want to go in and work and you want to try to conduct normal business, you are allowed to do it, even though you are aware of the risks and there will be risks and we will lose people. But as I've been saying, if this is a war, we should expect that there will be losses and we need to make policy based on what is best for all of us, not what is best for eliminating risk, because we can never do that. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want America to understand this week it's going to get bad and uh, we really need to come together as a nation. I I heard the stories that you were just playing young people out um, on beaches. Uh, We we see here in D.C. uh, that that the uh, district set up a cam for people to watch the cherry blossoms. You look on the cam, you see more people walking around than you see cherry blossoms. And this is how the spread is occurring. And so we really, really need to stay at home. I think that there are a lot of people who are doing the right things, but I think that, unfortunately, we're finding out a lot of people think this can't happen to them. When you look at what's going on in New York, and we said this at the beginning of our 15 days to stop the spread initiative, that the numbers you see reflect what happened two weeks ago. We don't want Dallas or New Orleans or Chicago to turn into the next New York, and it means everyone needs to be taking the right steps right now, and that means stay at home. Okay, for two weeks, it's in doing enormous damage already to the economy. Let's understand that even with a even with a two week 
uh, policy in place like this of lockdown, we are risking massive economic damage. And I want to tell you about that. So we all understand we're heading right now. The estimates are we're heading for a 30 percent joblessness rate. If we stay on this current course, 30 percent. Anybody want to guess what the jobless rate was in the Great Depression? 25 percent. Anyone really think that we're going to be able to snap back out of this? We did not in 1918 have a total secession of all activity in response to this. And then we did historically just go back and look what happened after 1918, 1919, a period in America known as the Roaring Twenties. Tremendous growth, prosperity, relative peace. Didn't last too long overall, but the 20s were good. That's what happened. And we lost millions of Americans in that circumstance. Now, I understand millions of Americans right now, that would that would seem to be too high a cost for anyone to bear. But we have a much better health care system now than we did then. We have much better treatments in general, meaning ventilators, you know, much better procedures in place, perhaps is the way to say it than we did in 1918 to help people that had interstitial pneumonia, which is a very scary thing. And I understand that comes with a lot of the very dangerous cases of this. But we, we don't really have data to support the annihilation of the U.S. economy. By the way, I am going to take the Democrats to task for what they've done here with holding up this uh, aid bill that everyone agrees is needed. Uh, the, Democrat, the Democrat Party is a disgrace. I mean, they are true national hostage takers. Pelosi and Schumer are unethical, scummy, disgraceful people. I, we'll get there. But I, I want to focus to start out with on right now this key decision making the calculation about what is acceptable for us in terms of losses and what we need to do in order to get the economy running again. By the way, the economy is not going to be off to a gallop. That's not going to happen. I'm just saying we need to get some stuff going here. We need to get businesses moving to the degree that we can, because otherwise there's not going to be an economy to restart. Keeping this shutdown going as is, much longer than this week. And I've given, remember, I said the 15 days, fine. That's what they say they need to get ready for this, 15 days. That does, that's not four months. It's not even 30 days. So the president, I think, understands this. He knows the status quo cannot hold. I am seeing all these messages from people and hearing from people everywhere that they're going to lose everything. People put their hearts, their lives, uh, their, their heart and soul everything into building a career, building a business, saving up some money, trying to make sure they're up with their bills. What happens now? The federal government's not going to make anybody whole who, whose business is gone. It's not going to happen. You can't just rehire all the people that have been fired as businesses have closed down. Think about all the time it'll just take to untangle the insurance claims that are going to come out of this, the, I mean, all the lawyered up bureaucratic minutia that this is going to, go, I mean, it's just going to be a mess, a mess. And America is going to have to go to uh, work very soon, because even if that means there are more casualties from COVID-19 than would occur under this uh, continued extreme shutdown, it doesn't matter. And this is a hard thing to say 
but it is reality and we need to accept it and act on it now. I could die from COVID-19. Anyone listening to this could also die from COVID-19. And no matter what the government does, that is not going to change. We are simply trying to deal with risk, risk management, which bureaucracies are notoriously bad at doing. And a lot of that risk management is on an individual level. What are you willing to do? What do you think is safe for you? Now, part of that risk management has to be what does the country look like if we just go into this this state of hibernation? I mean, this is economic hibernation. And then we try to revive ourselves in three months or six months. Now, I do think that the warmer the warmer period ahead will be a godsend. And that alone, based on what we see, and this experts are saying this too. So don't be like, Buck, you're not an epidemiologist. I'm reading people who all they do is study this. And they're saying, look, it would be strange if there was not a dramatic slowdown in this virus just from the change in seasonal temperature. But when you see things like this, I mean, you've got GDP predictions for the second quarter, according to Goldman Sachs, range from horrible down 8% to catastrophic down 15%. But Goldman Sachs actually just came out with a new research note this week. Now you might say, oh, Goldman Sachs. Yeah, but they're trying to assess what's happening to people's money. Trust me, Goldman Sachs cares about money. A research note with a a projection for GDP loss in the second quarter of 2020 suggests Goldman Sachs believes that the United States GDP will be down 24%. We can't do this. We can't do this. We can't do that because even if you look at the possibility of hundreds, and remember, we've only lost uh, in total right now in the United States, well, we're, we're in the hundreds of people who have been killed by this virus. If we lost hundreds of thousands of people from this, it would be similar to a very bad flu season, right? I mean, if we lost, let's say, 100,000 people, you've had up to 60,000, 70,000 from the flu, and no one even really you know, talked much about it. I mean, H1N1 infected tens of millions. And people say, don't be a flu truther. Not a flu truther. We're trying to assess real risk here. You can go out and get the flu during flu season in particular, but you can go out and get the flu and come home, and that's all she wrote, no matter who you are. It can shut down your system. If you catch a bad flu, you can die from it. Fact. Do you not leave your home? Do you insist that no one else leave their home? Do you have the government telling you that, whoa, we we can't have the loss of 50,000 people this year from flu, so no one's allowed to do anything? That's what we're doing right now. And I understand. I've seen all the scary stuff about Italy. I've seen, yeah, but we have two weeks of preparation here to get masks and everything in place. We have had social distancing. People are taking it in many places more seriously. I'm here in the epicenter, by the way. I'm here in New York City, which has by far the the greatest concentration of cases. And New York State, because of New York City, is a state that is worst, has been the worst hit by this. I mean, cases in New York, 20,875, 157. We've had 463 total deaths from this so far. We, we've had more people die. While this has been going on, we've had more people die from the flu than have died from this. That's just a fact. Meaning that while COVID has been spreading in the United States, more people have died from flu. 
Now, people can say, oh, it's worse than the flu and higher mortality. Those people don't know what the mortality is. Stop with the panic. We have to we have to present facts and rationality here. We can't do this based on emotion. No one wants anyone to die of any disease in this country. But trying to ensure an almost zero risk factor for people could create much worse risks for everybody. Systemic risks. Think about how many people die from suicide, from untreated illness, because the medical system will be a fraction of what it used to be because people will be out of work. Who makes the masks? Who makes the ventilators? All the things that our doctors, and God bless our doctors, nurses, first responders, everybody who's on the front lines of this, but all the tools that they use to fight against us come from the private sector, comes from commerce and business and industry. We need those things to keep working or else we're not going to have a medical sector to speak of. We're not going to be able to fight against other diseases too. So this is why I think it's so important right now that we all understand there needs to be a shift in the national mindset on this. We need people to be able to go back to work. We need social distancing to be a standard. We need elderly populations and those with compromised immune systems to be on lockdown. But the government has to wake up. This is not this is not an option. What they think is an option, three months, six months, nine months, is not an option. It's catastrophe. And we're still going to have a lot of people get sick and still going to have a lot of people die from, uh, from COVID-19 no matter what. It's not going to change. So we really just have to look at what is acceptable. And at some point, that's going to mean having a conversation about casualties, just as you would in any war. A war isn't worth fighting for, you know, I mean, you talk about a war of self-defense, even a war of self-defense at a certain point, if your casualties are too high, you'll just capitulate. Fine. The other side wins. That's what that's what ends up happening in a war. Right now, we can't capitulate against a virus. But in any wartime scenario, you're looking at the number of casualties and you're making decisions and assessments, understanding that there will be casualties. That's going to happen. And you're trying to just assess what are acceptable numbers of that. We are going to suffer casualties from COVID-19. We already have suffered a few hundred, which I'm going to walk you through the numbers on this. And I think you'll see, and not from me, this is from a, an epidemiologist at Stanford University School of Medicine, one of the premier medical schools in the country, in the world. And I'll walk you through point by point what he is saying about this, because I think we have, we, the, we are over, we are overreacting if we extend this shutdown of business beyond this week. That's where I am. And I, all, all I do is think about this. All I do is read about this, talk to the smartest people I know. And I, I'm just not seeing the case for this continued shutdown. I'm not seeing the case for this to extend beyond where we already are. And I am really, you know, I'm not terrified of us against coronavirus. We'll win. We'll get through it. I do get scared when we start to see the government thinking, yeah, we're going to have extra judicial detainment authority, which there are reports that are asking for in certain circumstances regarding quarantine. We're going to shut down businesses. We're going to deploy, you know, government uh, resources of force, police, deputizing people at the state level, making sure that all these mandates are enforced. 
the, you know, GPS tracking of individuals with this. This starts to get scary real quick. And the thing that's scarier to me than this virus is the government mishandling this and destroying the entire United States economy and taking the Constitution down with it. That's now the enemy that we face in addition to the virus. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I was in New York City yesterday. It was a pretty day. There is a density level in New York City that is wholly inappropriate. You would think there was nothing going on in parts of New York City. You would think it was just a bright, sunny Saturday. Uh, I don't know what I'm saying that people don't get. I'm normally accused of being overly blunt and direct, and I take that. It's true. I don't know what they're not understanding. This is not life as usual. None of this is life as usual. And this kind of density, we talk about social distancing. I was in these parks. It, you would not you would not know that anything was going on. This is just a mistake. It's a mistake. It's insensitive, it's arrogant, it's self-destructive, it's disrespectful to other people, and it has to stop, and it has to stop now. Now, I can't speak to what Cuomo saw in parks, but I can speak to being out in New York yesterday, walking on the street, which you are allowed to do. I was walking the dog, Tallulah. She's very cute. She knows something's up, too. She knows the humans do not seem to be in good moods these days. Uh, but I, I took her on a walk all, all through some of the most from Midtown down to what you consider to be the start of uh, Flatiron, uh, which is right before the village in New York City. These, these are I'm bringing it up just because these are the most densely packed parts of New York. Usually it's a ghost town. There's nobody on the streets. I walked through areas that would usually be just bumping with people out to brunch and bars and, you know, watching the game. I know there's no games right now. Uh, went to Madison Square Park, one of my favorite parks in New York, formerly where Madison Square Garden, the uh, place where the Knicks and the Rangers play used to be. Uh, and I went to check this out. And I'm telling you, yeah, there were some people on the streets, but it was not packed. And, and what I saw was a lot of businesses shut down that they rely on people coming in on Sundays to buy things, to get food, to just engage in commerce. Shutdowns everywhere, all over the city, because the, the initial guidance about or the mandate about this went into effect. So I can't speak to what's going on in Prospect Park out in Brooklyn or whatever, but I can speak to this is really scary. I mean, the city should not be shut down in this way for long. Because it's not going to survive it. And I, I know that for a lot of you, you're like, oh, Buck, this isn't really this doesn't really affect us out here. There are going to be more outbreaks in other states and there are going to be clusters of this. So you, you never know when this is going to hit. But also understand that, you know, if things get bad enough in New York City, uh, that has an effect not just on the national economy, but also people are going to start trying to leave New York to go to other places. And what are we going to have then? You know, people are going to want to go. They've already been doing this. They've already been trying to find places to seek refuge in other states. You know, Vermont, New Hampshire, more rural parts of Connecticut. Uh, so that's already happening. If New York starts to get out of control, guess what? You're going to have people that are trying to do everything they can to leave. What are you going to do? You're going to tell them no cars on the roads. No one's allowed to go anywhere. So 
I didn't see the the New York that Cuomo did there. I saw one that's on. I saw New York City on life support this weekend on a beautiful spring weekend. Life support. That's what I saw. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have to help the American worker. We have to help the countries from which the American workers, I mean, they came out of these companies that were doing phenomenally well. You saw where payroll was going way up, where wages were going way, way up. There's never been a time like this. We can't lose those companies, and we want the worker to be happy. And we're being, I think, more generous than anybody's ever been. We want to take care of the worker, but we want to make sure that when we win the war, it's only a question of it's when, not if. When we win the war against the virus, we want to make sure those companies are ready to charge forward. Not that they've been disbanded because we were penny wise and and dollar foolish. So they're trying to keep businesses open as long as they can by sending them checks. That's the idea. The federal government's going to try to give them money. Um, I, I will get into the response package and the Democrats efforts to just leverage it at the 11th hour for maximum partisan political benefit. I mean, it's an abject disgrace. It's absolutely disgusting what's going on. Um, But here, first, I want to walk you through this analysis from uh, Professor John uh, Ioannidis, who has put a piece out, we are making decisions without reliable data. Now, this guy is professor of medicine and professor of epidemiology and population health uh, at Stanford University School of Medicine. And he's not alone in this thinking, but I mean, he's he's as credentialed a person as you're going to find on this topic, basically. And here's what he said. I mean, this then this is my point. And by the way, I'm also I'm now getting attacked by the left for saying that we have to go back to work, even if it means that we would suffer a higher casualty rate than a multi month lockdown. And they're like, how many deaths are okay? These people are morons. They're a disgrace. And they don't understand that we make these decisions. Just as I was telling you last hour, we make policy decisions where we know there'll be casualties all the time. We are heading into a Great Depression unless we stop this. We cannot keep doing this. I know everyone's all scared and they're terrified. They're petrified. We are heading into a Great Depression unless we stop this. So that's And the president's basically said as much. But I'm getting the sense that there are some people who think, that they're going to stop him from doing or at the state level, they're going to keep this going or, or they're going to manage to convince the president that we need to have this forever. L- let me go back to what is the real risk here? What is the real what is the real data say? Um, and here's what you get. Professor John Unitas has the following to add to this. The data quote, the data collected so far on how many people are infected and how the epidemic is evolving are utterly unreliable. Given the limited testing to date, some deaths and probably the vast majority of infections due to SARS-CoV-2 are being missed. We don't know if we are failing to capture infections by a factor of three or 300. Three months after the outbreak emerged, most countries, including the U.S., lack the ability to test a large number of people and no countries have reliable data on the prevalence of the virus in representative random sample of the general population hmm so we don't know we, we don't know what the mortality rate is we don't know uh, how many infections there are out there we're not even close to how many infections there are out there 
And one of the major reasons that I've been saying this all along for the overreaction has been people assume that we have a fatality rate that's at least 10 times. Some are initially saying, I think, more like 50 times what you have for the flu. Well, that scares people, understandably. But we have a case study here where you have effectively a con- almost a controlled, it's not a controlled experiment, but a contained environment for an experiment in real time. The Diamond Princess case study. The one situation where an entire closed population was tested was the Diamond Princess cruise ship and its quarantine passengers. This is all from this piece by the professor at Stanford. The case fatality rate there was 1%, but this was a largely elderly population in which the death rate from COVID-19 is much higher. Projecting the Diamond Princess mortality rate onto the age structure of the U.S. population, the death rate among people infected with COVID-19 would be 0.125%. But since this estimate is based on extremely thin data, there were just seven deaths among the 700 infected passengers and crew. The real death rate could stretch from five times lower, 0.025%, to five times higher, 0.625%. It is also possible that some of the passengers who were infected might die later, and that tourists may have different frequencies of chronic diseases, a risk factor for worse outcomes with SARS-CoV-2 infection than the general population. Adding these extra sources of uncertainty, reasonable estimates for the case fatality ratio in the general U.S. population vary from 0.05% to 1%. That huge range markedly affects how severe the pandemic is and what should be done. A population, uh, 0.05% rather to 1%. A population-wide case fatality rate of 0.05% is lower than seasonal influenza. If that is the true rate, locking down the world with potentially tremendous social and financial consequences may be totally irrational. It's like an elephant being attacked by a house cat. Frustrated and trying to avoid the cat, the elephant accidentally jumps off a cliff and dies. This is what I am trying to say. And by the way, I mean, I'm being attacked now on social media, on Twitter and elsewhere, just just psychotically by the left for making exactly this point. I'm saying, look, we have to go back to work even if it means that there would be a greater uh, incidence of infection, and with that there will be a greater loss of life than if we continue in complete lockdown mode for, I don't know, six months, but we can't, the country can't sustain, and people will, their lives will be ruined and people will die. That's what's going to happen from the depression that will come from this. And I feel like some, especially these like work from home journo types, you know, and, uh, and people that are in the information economy and they're used to teleworking and they feel like, you know, they've got savings for six months or a year. They seem to think this isn't that big a deal. We are on the precipice of really scary stuff if this continues. <sighs> and I, I look, I don't mean I'm not trying to fear monger, but I feel like, OK, we now we take the virus seriously. We need to take the possibility of a depression seriously, too. He continues, by the way, with this analysis, which I think is essential for everybody to know. Could the COVID-19 case fatality rate be that low? No, some say, pointing to the high rate in elderly people. uh, people. However, even some so-called mild or common cold type coronaviruses that have been known for decades can have a case fatality rate as high as 8% when they infect elderly people in nursing homes. In fact, such mild coronaviruses infect tens of millions of people every year 
and account for 3 to 11% of those hospitalized in the U.S. with lower respiratory infections each winter. So what he's saying here is that even you know, among the elderly population, coronaviruses that are, are more similar to a common cold, not this coronavirus, not COVID-19, but other coronaviruses, it's known for a long time, if they get into the elderly population, they can kill as many as 8% of the elderly. So he says these mild corona. Remember, this is a professor of disease and epidemiology at Stanford Medical School. This is all he does. This is his entire you know, life's work has been on this issue. He's saying that among the elderly, you could have an 8% fatality rate for a standard coronavirus, not COVID-19. He also so he's saying that not only is that a higher rate than a lot of people are talking about right now, he's saying COVID viruses kill people all the time. We have no idea what the true number is. I'm sorry. Corona, yeah. Coronaviruses, not COVID viruses. Coronaviruses. Here's where he gives you some details on this. In an autopsy series that tested for respiratory viruses in specimens from 57 elderly persons who died during the 2016 to 2017 influenza season. Influenza viruses were detected in 18% of the specimens, while any kind of respiratory virus was found in 47%. In some people who die, in some people who die from viral respiratory pathogens, more than one virus is found upon autopsy and bacteria are often superimposed. A positive test for coronavirus does not mean necessarily that this virus is always primarily responsible for a patient's demise. So this then goes again to, we don't even know, just because somebody has corona, uh, coronavirus, when they die, it doesn't even mean that that necessarily is the reason for that death based upon what we see from looking at the 2016-27 flu season, where there can be a number of a number of factors and a number of different viruses at play at any point in time. What is the mortality rate? If we assume that case fatality rate among individuals infected by SARS-CoV-2 is 0.3% in the general population, a mid-range guess from the diamond princess analysis and that one percent of the u.s population gets infected about 3.3 million people this would translate to about 10,000 deaths this sounds like a huge number but it is buried within the noise of the estimates of deaths from influenza-like illness if we had not known about a new virus out there and had not checked individuals with pcr tests the total number of new deaths due to influenza-like illness would not seem unusual this year are we sure that flattening the curve is that much better is another point that he raises. If the health system does become overwhelmed, the majority of the extra deaths may not be due to coronavirus, but to other common diseases and conditions such as heart attack, strokes, trauma and bleeding. If the level of the epidemic does overwhelm the health system, extreme measures have only modest effectiveness. Flattening the curve may make things worse. Instead of being overwhelmed during a short acute phase, the health system will remain overwhelmed for a more protracted period. That's another reason we need to think about the exact level of activity. And then he basically says that, and this is what I've been saying, this could lead to riots. This could even lead. I, again, I'm not trying to be alarmist, folks. We're going to be OK. I know that today I'm a little more uh, dark on this topic than I've been in a while, but I'm, I'm seeing the, you know, the economic data doesn't lie. I mean, there's a graph going around right now about unemployment and unemployment after 2000, after the 2008 crisis or during the 2008 financial crisis versus unemployment now. And yeah, that's where we are. We're seeing, oh, I think 600,000 um, was, was the number that I saw in this graph in one week. 
It's astonishing, the unemployment spike. I mean, it's, it's a graph, and then all of a sudden there's this huge hockey stick-like projection that just goes straight up for unemployment. And we're, what, uh, in week two of the extreme shutdown measures? He also says we could, we could end up making this, meaning the government could end up making this worse than the 1918 influenza pandemic. Uh, with lockdowns of months, if not years, life largely stops. Short-term and long-term consequences are entirely unknown, and billions, not just millions of lives, may be eventually at stake. One can only hope that much like in 1918, life will continue. Conversely, with lockdowns of months, if not years, life largely stops. The long-term consequences of this could end up killing more people. Uh, that's where we are, and that's the reality. So everyone needs to wake up to that right now. And that means that trying to limit the risk to to as close to zero as possible of uh, people getting this, uh, that's going to become counterproductive. We're going to reach a point at which that's no longer possible. I'm not saying we're there already. I've said 15 days. Fine. But this is where the situation stands right now. We have to get America back to work, not in months, in weeks and really, within two weeks, I think, is the, what the goal should be. That doesn't mean that there's not social distancing. It doesn't mean that we don't do a lot of things. Wash the hands, protect the vulnerable elderly population. Those individuals, people that are more vulnerable, should be given additional special resources and protections. And we all understand, everyone is paying attention to what's going on in this country, that we need to protect our vulnerable populations. But that's where we are. We have to do something to get the economy going again or else that is going to become a bigger threat to this country than this virus. That's where we are right now. According to experts who are looking at it, I don't know what else to say. I'm just trying to spread what I think is the most necessary information for our decision-making right now. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. You think it'll be wrapped up by Monday? Well, I hope it is. We're having good bipartisan agreements. The initial bill Leader McConnell put in didn't have any Democratic input, and we were worried they would just try to put it on the floor and not consult uh, Speaker Pelosi because the House still has to pass this. But actually, to my delight and surprise, there has been a great deal of bipartisan cooperation thus far. Yeah, even the president was speaking uh, very uh, positively about you and uh, yeah, that, that doesn't happen very often. Even Speaker Pelosi. <laughs> and what was the thanks that the president got for that and other Republicans for working with Democrats like Schumer for days in a bipartisan way to try to get a bill passed that would help with the situation? The Democrats were involved from the very beginning. This should be great, right? We should be all set. What happened last night at the 11th hour? I mean, oh, it almost was the 11th hour. I don't know what the time was, but what happened last night? Oh, Nancy Pelosi showed up and all of a sudden said, no, no bipartisan bill. I'm going to start a new bill. And the Democrats in the Senate went along with it. Wouldn't let the cloture vote happen. Wouldn't let the Senate vote on a trillion dollar plus relief package. Right. That's that's exactly what happened. That, that it, they, they were involved. Schumer, and the Democrats. But, I mean, the left is completely insane. The, the bipartisan facade has been breaking down very quickly on this. I mean, leftists are totalitarians, and they're vicious. So even in a pandemic, they don't stop being vicious totalitarians. 
a lot of us are trying to talk about solutions and what's best for everybody, trying to save as many people as possible while also preventing a depression that will destroy the country and end up killing who knows how many people. Uh, we like to think that we can have a bipartisan conversation about something of this seriousness, but leftists are insane. They're insane with their hatred of Trump, but also they have a, a vicious totalitarian impulse that they absolutely um, cannot put aside. Right. They want to control everything has to be their way. And you see this with Democrats, with Pelosi. What, what do you think is the thing that they they absolutely want to make sure they get funding for? I mean, I know that they've just decided, I think it was uh, uh, they're they're trying to limit, I think, elective procedures like abortions right now. Oh, just give it time. I'm sure there'll be a federal judge because all medical elective procedures right now are being put on hold. Is an abortion an elective procedure? Ask a Democrat that. Oh, it's not elective. It's like they'd say it's life saving. It's life ending. Um, But Pelosi came in and is going to have a whole, I'm sure, laundry list of things that she wants that have nothing to do with saving anybody from this pandemic have nothing to do with uh, just helping the American people. It's Pelosi holding the American economy hostage right now. I mean, the market is now below the Dow is below 19,000 plummeting again today. OK, it was at 30,000 a few weeks ago. So the market's getting absolutely crushed and people are, are, are losing money. And, and, you know, there's there's real pain here. Pelosi doesn't care. Let's just say Pelosi's an unethical and nasty person. She is. Doesn't affect her at all. She's going to keep getting money. She's going to keep getting, um, you know, the millions and millions of dollars. You know, as long as she has access to her bank accounts, probably, you know, foreign and domestic, uh, she's good. You know, whatever she needs, she's got she's covered. This doesn't really matter to her. He lives in a mansion. You know, some of this is bouncing around Congress. Anyone can get this anywhere. We know that you've got five Republican senators out of action right now. Senator Rand Paul actually is positive for this for COVID-19. He's asymptomatic. Uh, Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, she is in self-quarantine right now. So, yeah, I mean, politicians are subject to this as well. But Pelosi seems to lack a fundamental appreciation for the severity and the seriousness of the economic moment right now. And this is just another example of the Democrats, even now, can't stop playing politics, even now. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. So at a time when the country is crying out for bipartisanship and cooperation, and we saw that over the last 48 hours when regular members of the Senate, not in the leadership office, not in the Speaker's office, for goodness sake, she's the Speaker of the House, not the Speaker of the Senate. We don't have one. We were doing just fine until that intervention. So I want the American people to fully understand what's going on here. The markets are already reacting to this outrageous nonsense. We have an obligation to the American people to deal with this emergency and to deal with it tomorrow. And if we don't, I want everybody to fully understand you've seen everybody who's on record. Now, I've conspicuously avoided trying to turn this into any kind of partisan effort for two days. But it's pretty clear what's going on here. Yes, it is. Have you ever heard Mitch McConnell get that upset about really anything? And this is just a betrayal. It's a betrayal not just of the bipartisan effort that was going on. Remember, Schumer, I played that clip. That was from last week. He's saying, we're working with Republicans. It's good. We're on this. We're going to take care of this. Then Nancy Pelosi shows up. She's like, nope, let's hold them hostage. And everyone, everyone, the Democrats in the Senate go, yeah, fine. That sounds good. 
Mitch McConnell's upset because it's also a betrayal of the American people. I mean, the country is going to be increasingly politically combustible here. Meaning that we're not going to just, you know, continue to say, oh, well, well, you know, political leadership is on this and they're working on it and, you know, they'll take care of us. Politicians haven't missed a paycheck. Politicians don't plan on missing a paycheck. Most members of the media and look, uh, you know, for now, even members of the conservative media, we're in that fortunate those of us who can work from home or write from home or do whatever it is that we can do remotely. You know, so far, media organizations uh, are keeping up with business. They're keeping going. But by and large, I mean, this is this isn't going to continue either. You need businesses. You need, you know, do you, th- you watch, you know, cable news shows and they've got sponsors, you know, they've got car companies and Starbucks. And if everything's shut down, the sponsorships are going to go away, too, folks. You know, th- this is where we are. Everyone's going to be affected by this. And in ways that they can't even begin to really accurately gauge. And in that environment, Pelosi is doing this. It is a complete, a complete disgrace. The Senate bill was a bipartisan bill. It had Democrat input from the very beginning. And Pelosi just saunters in and is like, you know, yeah, this is not what we're going to do. We're going to do what I want. And you have to look at this and say, when do we get to call Pelosi out for just being a disgraceful and unethical person? The, the delay here matters. You know, we keep hearing about how the timing matters for fighting against COVID-19. It matters for getting masks. It matters for N95 respirators. The delay matters. And it also matters for the economy. We don't have days and days to wait here. I mean, people are making decisions. They're shutting businesses down. Bad stuff is happening in real time. And she just... Also, what does this mean about the confidence we can have in any part of the legislative ability to fix this right now? At any point in time, Nancy Pelosi could just throw a fit and the Democrats will go along with her. Democrats in the Senate. She's not the speaker of the Senate. It was Senate Democrats that took their marching orders from Nancy on this. Um, And I saw a friend of mine from Capitol Hill tweeted this out. Josh Holmes, he said the Democrat filibuster of Corona relief is the single most irresponsible act I've seen in 20 years of being around the Senate. God help the Americans whose livelihoods will be irreparably damaged tomorrow as a result. The anger is going to rise, my friends, and the anger is going to start rising toward people who don't understand how painful this is for a lot of folks out there who are losing everything, who are losing businesses, losing livelihoods, losing life savings, losing hope, losing a future. There's more than just a virus to fight against here. We all know that, or at least we should. And it's just it's troubling today, you know, having leftists come after me because I'm trying to make the case that we need to balance this out. It can't just be whatever we do to uh, to stop the virus is inherently justified because at some point you you cross, you know, on on the axis here of how many people are you losing and how much are you losing in American society? You cross the point at which you're unwilling to continue with the lockdown because you realize that the losses in every other regard are too much. It's just uh, it's just you know troubling to see. I mean, look, leftists are contemptible people in general. I, I would like to do everything possible to save everybody I can across the country. And I, not that I can, that we can as a government and as a people across the country. Um, and, and yet leftists continue to be contemptible, even of those of us who are really trying to approach this in good faith. 
and and push for wise decision making, wise policy. And as I've said to you, I'm right. I'm not just in the middle of, you know, I'm not just uh, in New York State or in New York City. I'm in the middle of New York City, the greatest concentration of COVID-19 anywhere in the United States. The United States now has the third most cases in the world. And I'm saying, look, we we have to find a, a compromise here. We have to find a balance between the acceptable risk and the damage done to the economy. That's where we are right now. And the government's trying to figure this out, too, which I think is part of why uh, you have not seen, at least yet, the president come forward. And I mean, as I go to air here, he has not yet done a press conference. I saw Cuomo's press conference this morning. Um, But the the Democrats playing a game at this point is something that nobody should ever forget. I mean, you know, Nancy Pelosi is somebody who she sees power. She sees advantage. She sees the ability to exercise leverage over the other side doesn't matter how desperate the situation in fact the, the more desperate the situation the better more, the more desperate the circumstance the more she feels like she's able to get her way because she'll play as dirty as she has to play and this is why you're going to see all this stuff that the democrats in the house caving to the insane left wing of the house democrats which these people are nuts and there's some people who are still, oh, we shouldn't lose sight of the threat of climate change while this is going on. These, these people are, are lunatics. But the Democrat left uh, still has a lot of influence over the party and still has a lot of say even over the leadership of the party like Nancy Pelosi. And so she's willing to make this decision. She's willing to cave to them. And it's just it's appalling. I mean, I'm I'm quick to say that, um, you know, I, I've, I've all along tried to say that we should come together here and and I'm, al- I'm already seeing this fray before we even know how bad this is going to get and where we're going to be. I'm already seeing that um, I'm, <laughs> you know, the the hyper partisan nature of all the stuff that's going on right now in Congress, as well as in much of the media. I mean, today there was a piece, a CNN piece about how three people overdosed on chloroquine in Nigeria in the aftermath of President Trump's comments that maybe this will be an effective treatment for uh, for COVID-19. I, I don't know if these are people who just took it themselves or if they had a doctor who poorly administered it or something. But how is this even a news story? I've asked and I've seen a lot of people, you know, snarky liberals. I'm under I'm under left wing assault today, just, you know, on social media. They're all they're all coming after the Buckster, which is fine. They're morons. And, you know, ultimately you start to recognize, you know, what are these people, you know, idiots wake up and they're idiots all the time and they'll never be right. They'll never be ethical. They'll never be worth anyone's time. And they just speak to the brainwashed and the largely brain dead of the progressive left. And that's that's what they do. That's that's their existence. You know, the people that work in the media that cater to this left wing insanity. Um, you know, some of them are the same people that I've seen who are big advocates for, uh, you know, Andrew Gillum should be the governor of Florida because he seems like a really really solid, ethical individual. You seen the stories about Gillum's situation? I also had to note that there are some left-wing journos out there who, uh, who were saying, oh, he was just at a, he was at a wedding and it was with a friend. I saw that. I think the Young Turks guy put that out there. He was just at a wedding, you know? He just... No, he was actually at a... Uh, he was in a in a hotel with a male escort and um, methamphetamine on the on the premises. And a, I mean, I'm not even getting into this, what the special medicine was for, but special medicine for other stuff and that you inject, which I don't even know that was a thing. And 
uh, you know, we were told that this guy should be governor of Florida, a very important, very large state. Because, yeah, the, that's right. If we had a Democrat like Andrew Gillum in charge in Florida, the COVID-19 response now would be better. That's what they want you to believe. And this story in Nigeria, a country that of the journalists that are all piling on me now for saying, how is, why does CNN think this is a news story? The answer to my question is it's a news story because it's a way of saying Trump overstated this. And so now people are dying. Trump lied. Trump lied. You know, Trump lied. People died about chloroquine. That, that's supposed to be the takeaway. Or Trump overstated and people, these, this is idiotic. Trump said, it may not be anything. It may not mean anything. You know, we're hopeful. We'll see. And three people in a country that is over 5,000 miles away, a country of 180 million plus people to begin with, three people overdose on this, a drug that's been in that country for decades and people have been taking to fight malaria for decades. And this is a CNN shares this from their main account with 40 million followers on Twitter. This is a news story. Why? Oh, because of the Trump angle. And people will pretend that they can't see that. But of course, that's why. So, you know, here's here's where we are with all of this. Uh, You know, it's going to get as it gets scarier, there'll be more bad faith, partisan leftist morons running around uh, yelling at people and being crazy and, and saying that, you know, you're. I mean, this is the same the same media that was telling us for the last week. The biggest problem was calling it Wuhan virus because that's so racist or calling it a Chinese virus because that's so racist. Now they're turning around and saying anybody who wants to shut the econ- or turn the economy back on from the shutoff as soon as possible. I didn't say tomorrow. Wants more dead people. This is just bad faith idiocy. Uh, that's all it is. Bad faith idiocy. So, you know, you get a lot of that from the left. Though, and we're going to see a lot more of it going forward let's talk about some of the uh trying to find some of the the upside here um first of all things that have worked so far and then also things that might work in the future let's let's switch gears into some of that and then also i'll tell you about we got to do sort of our quarantine hangout session where i tell you about what what's going on with me and we'll do a roll call and because this is it you guys team buck is my only team uh right now i don't get to see anybody I'm on lockdown. I get to see the family French bulldog. That's really that's really it. You know, with with very, very seldom exception for young family members uh, who are who are healthy. You know, I, I don't get to see the people in my life. So I get to talk to all of you. This is more important than ever from a news standpoint that I get to address all of you, but also personally and psychologically. I mean, you know, the team, you, you guys are all and gals, of course, um, I have to do the general guys, you know, guys, it means everybody, you guys, I'm from New York. That's how we talk. Uh, You are keeping me company through this quarantine in a time when that really is, that is meaningful. And I I hope I'm providing at some level the same for, for those of you who listen and who watch. And also that's why I want more than ever, as many people to write in and just tell me what you're going through, what it's like across the country and what you're thinking. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. If you look at the dynamics of the outbreak in Italy, we don't know why they are suffering so terribly, but there's a possibility, and and many of us believe, 
that early on they did not shut out as well the input of infections that originated in China and came to different parts of the world. One of the things that we did very early and very aggressively, the president, you know, was put the travel restriction mm-hmm. coming from from uh, China to the United States and most recently from Europe to the United States because Europe is really the new China. Again, I don't know why this is happening there to such an extent, but it is conceivable that once you get so many of these spreads out, they spread exponentially, and you can never keep up with this tsunami. And I think that's what, unfortunately, our colleagues and our dear friends in Italy are facing. So again, we return to Dr. Fauci here saying that the shutdown of flights from China is the single most important early stage decision that the Trump administration made, right? The shutdown from China is, uh, the shutdown of flights from China was something that the media, the same media that's now telling us, yeah, the, you know, the, the shutdown should continue as long, the, the economic shutdown should continue as long as possible. Uh, they seem to be saying, oh yeah, um, we, well, they, they will not admit that they were wrong about flights from China. The truth is there should have been a shutdown in flights from Europe, too, but we didn't know how badly Europe had been hit. And when you break down what's gone on in Italy, the elderly, the particularly aged population there, they have, I think, the second oldest in the world after Japan. They have direct flights, a lot of direct flights, not just from China, but from Hubei province, which is where Wuhan city is in China because of the textile uh, textile factories and there's a lot of, of crossover with China on that. Um, that's an important uh, differentiator between us and them. And then they also have a, um, a higher percentage of smokers than we do, which unfortunately for the smokers out there, that does increase your risk from this disease. So please, please take good care of yourself. Take a little extra precaution if you're a smoker. But Italy has a higher rate of smoking, particularly among the elderly. Uh, substantially, I think it's double what it is in the United States. Um, and, you know, so they had and they got hit and they weren't ready. We, we have been we're now going to have been getting ready for two weeks. And people that think that we should just continue in this current mode indefinitely, I'd want to ask them, what do what do they think the acceptable costs to the economy are? Right. What, what do they think the acceptable range is of what we should do here? Um, and they, they don't have any answers because right now people are scared, they're angry, and there's a lot of jockeying for status among those who are in the narrative right now, right? Who's going to be listened to on this and who's not in the media? You'll see a lot of that. I just, want my, I just want my country and my city to be able to continue to function and go back to work as soon as possible. And that's just where we are, right? That's just, we, we have to confront this, that there's not going to be an easy, an easy choice to make, an easy time. So Dr. Fauci, though, saying that that's that's a very important part of this. And also we've got some on the um, some update on uh, the usage of chloroquine. Uh, The usage of chloroquine is a very well, you know, we're hopeful on this one. It could be turning a corner. It will not eliminate the fear and the shutdowns and everything, even if it shows some very high likelihood of working. But it certainly will. Um, be an issue uh, that we or rather it'll certainly be an advancement um, that will help dramatically against this it'll help dramatically in our fight against the disease so we'll have to see 
uh, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of where we are on that. I, th- I think New York State has, as of tomorrow, uh, going. Uh, New York State, as of tomorrow, will be using chloroquine to treat this. So we'll hopefully be getting frontline data. And, you know, it's not going to be as controlled a study as we'd like, but frontline data very, very soon. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's an issue here of where we're, we're coming from. The president has heard, as we all have heard, what, are what I call anecdotal reports that certain drugs work. So what he was trying to do in the Express was the hope that if they might work, let's try and push their usage. I, on the other side, have said I'm not disagreeing with the fact anecdotally they might work, but my job is to prove definitively from a scientific standpoint that they do work. So I was taking a purely medical scientific standpoint, and the president was trying to bring hope to the people. Mm -hmm. I think there's this issue of trying to separate the two of us. There isn't fundamentally a difference there. He's coming from it from a hope layperson standpoint. I'm coming from it from a scientific standpoint. That's the explanation that I think anybody who was being fair-minded would have already known from watching the press conference last week. You had this whole dust-up between President Trump and uh, some NBC reporter over whether Trump was giving a sense of false hope by saying that, you know, we'll see if this combination of chloroquine and uh, azithromycin, uh, which is an antibiotic that I'm sure, pack I'm sure a lot of you are familiar. I think z is azithromycin. Um, if I'm wrong on that, apologies. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on radio. But this would be a very, very helpful tool. This would be something that would finally make people feel like, all right, we're going to we're going to turn the corner at some point here. Um, we're going to get to a, a state where we know we're winning this fight. And if you bring the mortality rate down substantially, uh, y- you're going to be able to make much more clear headed, I think, decisions and much you know, you're, you're going to have a better understanding of what's feasible, what's not, when we can get back to work. Because right now we don't know what the mortality rate really is, and we don't have a real way to treat this. And putting someone on a ventilator, all that really does is keep them alive. Obviously, critical, keep them alive, but it doesn't kill the virus. It just keeps the uh, keeps the cycle going of breathing while their system fights off the virus. So having something that would even just give, you know, substantial uh, efficacy here. It doesn't even it doesn't have to cure it the next day. But even if it just prevents, that's why I keep focusing the mortality aspect of it. I I don't think that we're looking to take, uh, you know, chloroquine as at least my understanding right now is that it's not it's not going to be something you take as a prophylactic against this, even if it shows some efficacy against the disease when people are infected. I think the likelier situation is that you're just going to see this used in acute cases uh, when somebody is infected and they're trying to make sure they keep them alive. They're going to have, you know, the respiratory um, or the respirator going, but they'll be giving them chloroquine and azithromycin. And hopefully that will be enough um, to make sure that we have very, very, very few casualties among anybody who catches this. Um, you know, I'm also seeing now, and this is a classic thing. This happened when I went on the Bill Maher show, too. I mean, I have people who are actually hoping that I or someone in my family gets COVID-19 just because I'm trying to advocate for a, a fact-based and reasonable 
uh, a numbers-based approach to it. You know, leftists see see what I'm saying or hear what I'm saying here on the show, and they, you know, I, I would never. I'll just tell you this right now. I would never do that. And uh, that's it's important you remember these things, especially when you're in my business, to separate you from them. Um, I get to go to sleep every night and wake up every morning knowing that I'm a decent, ethical person who cares about other human beings. And even the biggest jerks around, I would help if they, you know, if they were in danger, I would help if they needed it. And I want what's best for all of my fellow Americans and all my fellow human beings when it comes to dealing with this virus. Uh, that people think that it's a funny quip to say, you know, well, yeah, well, hopefully you'll get this. Then we won't have to hear from you anymore. Uh, and these are blue checks, but you know, these are journos. Yeah, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. Um, I mean, the left, it really is, uh, unfortunately, morally rotten and diseased. And that doesn't change just because there's a pandemic. Um, they they have adopted uh, beliefs and they have adopted an approach to other people they disagree with that is uh, is hateful and spiteful and disgusting. So, you know, we I think last week there was such a shock around how frightening things had gotten, how bad things had gotten, that, that we had a sense that maybe uh, there would be a little bit more of a bipartisan flavor to this, a little bit more of an all hands on deck from the politicians and from the political class. But that seems to be changing uh, very quickly. Uh, that seems to be changing with the day. And just wait until there's a there's an opening. They will pile on to President Trump with everything that they've got because they know that there's there's power at stake here right now. Uh, the Obama administration came in during a financial crisis and Rahm Emanuel and others. I mean, they were explicit about uh, Rahm Emanuel was at least, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. And so they turned the financial crisis into an opportunity to leverage the fear and panic among people in this country to get what they wanted. Well, you know, that's that's really um, one of the you know, when, when, when you look at what they're going to do now, what the Democrats are going to be up to now, it's going to be quite similar. Uh, they're going to leverage this for their own political gain as much as they possibly can. One other point here about about ten, and by the way, I know we've talked this a lot today, but, you know, you guys also need to let me know. I mean, team, th- I want to make this as interactive as I can. And we are. I have been researching. I just got to figure out how to do it how to set up a voicemail inbox so you we can play voicemails uh, on the air about the show, or, you know, f- for the show. Um, I, I also have to note that, uh, uh, you know, if you want me to try to find, I mean, there are other news stories that are happening. It just feels like this is such a, you know, so much more central than anything else going on right now that I don't know if you would think it was a bit flippant. It was a little bit... Uh, off key for me to get into some other things. I mean, you just you, you look at at any news site right now, though, and it's basically all coronavirus coverage. It's basically all um, about this issue. I, you know, there's not really a whole lot else uh, that's being talked about or going on. I mean, there's no sports, so I can't even bring producer Mark in to talk about sports. Um, I'll try to find ways to talk to you about books and about TV shows and other things. But, you know, this is where we are right now. This is the world that we're living in. If you would like me to uh, get to a place where we can start maybe in the third hour, just do other kinds of stories. I'll, I'll look for some things, find some things. I'm happy to do that. But I want this to be a place where you get information and you hear what's going on and, 
you know, we, we there's a sharing of how we're all feeling right now that goes on. We're about to get into roll call to that end. Uh, but also, I, I want this to be a place where you can seek a little bit of, uh, of a respite from all of this and maybe just knowing that you're hearing a, a friendly voice about this and that, you know, I, I, I am still optimistic. I know we will get through this. I know we've been through worse things as a country. Um, but, you know, let me know, team. I, I am starting work on a history podcast. Uh, that is something that I'll be doing. So, you know, there's there's some things that I'll, I'd like to introduce into our show day to day that I'm I, I want to be more relaxing, more laid back and everything else. So that's I, I'm going to try to do that as well is what I'm saying. But I also don't want it to be like, why is Buck, you know, telling stories about what it was like back in the day, in, you know, in, in New York City or I, I don't know, whatever, when we need to be focusing in on the single biggest problem facing humanity right now. So, you know, to that end, I want to try to keep things, uh, you know, I want to try to keep things focused on what matters, but also make sure that you're not like, oh, Buck, you're really going to talk about coronavirus every day? I mean, Guys, I, I don't know what else there is really that's going to get at least our first hour of the show. I mean, if something changes, that would be that would be great. Um, but yeah, that, that's where that's where we are. Uh, that is the reality of our situation right now. And we need to deal in as we always try to deal in this reality. Um, it was it was a bit spooky walking around uh, New York and door. I wasn't I wasn't at a party or with a lot of people or anything else. I was walking the dog. But walking around this city and just seeing what it's doing here, um, our response to this is crippling. I mean, I'm seeing restaurants. I'm walking past places that I've got memories of. You know, I've been on, you know, been out with friends there, been out with my parents, been on dates, bars and restaurants and different stores. And, you know, you when you whether you're in a city or you're out in, you know, a rural area, you always have associations, memories that you that you bring to bear with certain places and and yeah uh i'm seeing places and thinking they're is that ne is it never going to open again it would seem that's a distinct possibility for a lot of them and that's that's really disconcerting uh, because those are uh, those are people that work there that, that that's part of their life and that's how they pay their bills that's how they build a future for their kids and for their families so I'm, I'm looking for the optimistic side of this as much as I can. And what I find is that, you know, we've been through very difficult times as a country before. We've never really been through this, though. Uh, we've never really decided that we were going to engage in extreme measures of this kind to deal with a pandemic. And we don't have a template to work off of. And so when I say we're going to get through this because we've been through a lot of bad things, I'm also very cognizant of we've never been through this. We've never been through a situation like this. Uh, and that's really where we are. And that's really the, the recognition of where we are at this moment in time. And I just hope that uh, I can come to you with, with good news sooner than later about how things are, are going right now. I mean, it's a tough time in this country. And how can you escape? I mean, the, the problem we also have is how can you escape coronavirus when we're all basically under different stages of self-distancing and quarantine there's no sports going on there's no gatherings you're not seeing people what do we really have to do books and media consumption i actually for the first time i, I tried a, a, a puzzle over the weekend which was interesting i tried a puzzle 
But books and um, media consumption are the way that is most readily available for us to think about something else, to deal with something else. And unfortunately, the media is completely dominated by this, right? If you look at the news media, so then you just got to get into the Netflix. And I'm pretty sure my Netflix was the quality of it. The uh, resolution of it was down a little bit. But, um, you know, like I said, I, I want to try to do everything I can to bring you into what we need to talk about every day, but also to give us all an escape from it. So I'm, I'm working on some ideas. I've got some thoughts and facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or team buck at iheartmedia.com to share, you know, what you if you think there's a kind of segment we should do, if there are things you just want to hear me talking about, you know, I, I get up, I do this show for three hours every day to serve this audience. So let me know how best I can serve this audience during this pandemic. I put that out to all of you. Um, and by serving you, I'll be helping myself out because I want to be in touch with as many of you every day as I possibly can. And this really is you are my connection to the outside world that and walking this uh, cute little French bulldog around on the street because, you know, that I'm still allowed to do. And I'm very thankful to have like, I got to say, those of us who have a little canine companion around, it's it's a special thing right now. You know, dogs. Dogs are amazing in general, but right now I think a lot of people are looking around saying, wow, it's really, or, or a cat, or, you know, if you're into birds or lizards or whatever, you know, whatever kind of pet you've got, I think now is a particularly helpful time for us to have that companionship. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Let's bring in the wisdom of the penalty box. We got Mark. I wanted you all to hear from him because we haven't been able to talk to him in a little while. Producer Mark. Hello. How are you doing, buddy? You're work from home now, too. Yeah. I finally got equipment, so you now can, now can hear me. I know everyone, everyone was, was very excited. much they were, they were like, what is going on? It's uh. not going to return to normal. We're not going to be okay unless producer Mark is around. Yeah. Who's going to yell at Buck for, you know, doing stupid stuff? Correct. Exactly. Huh. There needs to be like an ombudsman for the people, for the team. So how how'd you spend? I mean, tell us just a little bit, because I think this is we all need to, to share because we don't get to see each other. There's, this is water cooler talk now because no one can actually go to water coolers because there's other people around them. Uh, well, you know, how do you spend your weekend? Uh, not doing much. Uh, I was glad to finally see my wife since she's back and forth from Long Island. So uh, that was nice. Uh, but pretty much staying inside. I mean, what, what else can you do? When uh, you're quarantined and not allowed to go anywhere. Yeah, what'd you watch? Uh, I didn't, uh, well, let's see. Uh, we watched Manifest. That's a good show. That's a show we watched together. What's uh, that about? Uh, it's about this plane. It's kind of like Lost. It's about this plane that disappeared coming back from Jamaica and then reappeared five years later and just kind of landed as if nothing happened. And mm. it's like a mystery show. You know, where, where was the plane? Oh, that yeah. sounds like a nice, you know... He, for for him and for her, kind of kind of a show. Were you a lost person, by the way? I, I bailed not. after, I bailed after season three. It was a very sound decision. Uh, I'm not going to bail on Manifest just yet. Uh, it's actually kept me intrigued the whole time. I'm shocked. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. it might be great. I'm just saying for those that watch Lost all the way to the end, I because yeah. I made the decision. I was like, there's no way they can make this make sense. It's just gotten too convoluted and too weird. And everyone I knew who watched it all the way through, some enjoyed it and good for them, and I'm happy. But everyone who watched it all the way through turned around and was like, yeah, they kind of just like 
mailed it in at the end. I mean, it was, you know, the whole thing didn't really make sense. So I was forced to watch, I think, the pilot and maybe another episode in a class in college. And it didn't really intrigue me. So I never bothered to watch more. What do, what do you think? I mean, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal now. What to do when you're sheltering in place? What do you what do you want to do? Are, are you like taking up any hobbies or anything? Because, man, we're going to have more time at, uh, you know, on our hands at home than we have in a long time. No, I'm just playing more video games and eating a lot more. All I do is eat. I feel like I'm hungry every 10 minutes. I'm I'm really worried. Uh, I said that Corona bod may be a thing, but it's really not Corona bod. Um, it's it's going to be a quarantine bod. Yeah. You know, that's going to end up happening. Well, people are trying to change that with the Instagram challenges. I don't know if you've seen these, the C10, do 10 push-ups and, and other stuff like that. I haven't seen that, but I probably should because yeah. right now, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's just really tough to to lie down on your living room floor and really and like because it is also I don't, I don't live in a house. So I got very limited space, limited room. It's very tough to lie down on your living room floor and. uh you know, push yourself to do like a hundred burpees at a time. I mean, burpees are the, have you ever done a bur- burpees are the worst thing in the no, world. They're terrible. Yeah. So, why and would you want to do them to come for your own home? Yeah. I mean, you know, also you're in quarantine. It's so easy to tell yourself, okay, I'm stress eating a little bit, but it's a stressful situation. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I will admit to getting an Instacart delivery with a couple of pints of uh, Ben and Jerry's. You know, you I've discovered, snacks. I discovered a kind of ice cream called not a moo, which uh, has coconut. I discovered a kind of ice cream that is uh, absolutely delicious. That Sounds is very coconut bougie. In- instead of milk. Yes, I got to tell you, it's because you know why? They didn't have the actual ice cream I wanted. And I'm usually uh, anybody that goes for like a substitute meat or substitute ice cream is just destined for disappointment. But this Nata Moo cookies and cream was amazing. And it's coconut instead of milk, like coconut yeah. milk. Yeah, I mean, I've had you. Halo Top before. It's not dairy free. People like that. Good, yeah. I can't. I, yeah, I don't really do the Halo Top, but I, I've heard people have. All right, by the way, are you going to. Producer Mark, maybe you should uh, take up. Because I know Mrs. Mark, also known as Ariel, is not around that much right now at home. Maybe on, on the weekends, right? During the week, she's yes. out in LA. So, uh, which is Long Island for those who aren't from the New York area, which is basically its own state, but it's technically a part of New York, but it's a huge thing. Uh, maybe you should take up a little cooking and you could come on the show and I could uh, help walk you through some of this stuff. Sure. I just need ingredients to cook. It's kind of hard to get stuff right now, Buck. Are you really? Are, you, are the grocery stores? Because the grocery oh, stores in empty. New York, they're empty. Because the only thing that's empty, you can't get hand sanitizer. You can't get paper towel. So I don't have a car during the week, so I can't or, go or myself. Or toilet paper. Ah, so okay. I'm doing Instacart or some sort of delivery service. Yeah, everybody and wants home will, delivery. The guy yeah. will be coming and he'll like send me pictures of the pasta aisle, for example, completely empty. Yeah, no, the pasta you can't get, yep. canned food you can't get. It's it's crazy out there. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everybody. It's where we get to hear your thoughts on... Everything that is going on here for Roll Call, and let's get to it, shall we? Uh, I, I do very much appreciate those of you who are writing in. It is, man, it, it it's adds a layer of normalcy to my day that I, I really look forward to. I mean, I always look forward to it, but all right, here we go. Brett. Hey, Buck, as terrible as everything is here in the States, I hope no one forgets about the troops and sailors overseas. The USS Dwight Eisenhower and Harry Truman have been deployed and had all port calls canceled since mid-February until who knows when. 
Port calls keep a crew sane, and the morale hit of no port calls has to be terrible for those ships and all of the deployed ships. Brett, really good point, man. I hear you. That is whew, being stuck on ship uh, under these kinds of circumstances, not able to go ashore. It is. Um, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be a, a terrible strain on our on our sailors and, and airmen and people who are out there uh, as part of our surface naval warfare operations around the world. Um, and, and oh, my gosh, you know, submarine surface, forget surface under the surface, too. Right. It's, uh, submarines. Yeah, that's going to be tough. Um, so, Brett, thank you for and, you know, my my heart goes out to all those who are doing their duty for us abroad under these circumstances. You know, obviously people who are deployed are going to be as we all are, but they're going to be de they're deployed. They're you know, worried about family members, worried about what's going to happen uh, back home. So but they've got to keep keep us uh, safe still. I mean, I, I worry and I don't mean to go down a negative path here. It's negative enough out there in the world right now. But I worry about what if we what if something else hits us right now? What if we find ourselves in a circumstance where someone tries to one of our ad now? I know you'd say people all over the world. Well, yeah, what about, you know, terrorist groups and non-state actors? Right. This is look. let's just hope. Let's just hope things get better. Brian, gents, thanks for a commentary on extra tipping right now. More of us need to do it. My home in rural PA has trash pickup outside once a week. The normally two man crew was operating by himself yesterday, driving and getting out at every house in the neighborhood, made it a point to go thank him and gave him some cash. Keep the trash guys happy when trash pickup stops moving. We got problems. Oh, Brian, that's absolutely true. Um, it's absolutely the case. Um, we, we should do everything we can to show support for those who are still out there doing their jobs. And that means if you can throw them some extra cash, do it helps them able to take care of their families. It also, you know, there's, there's a, a self-interest, which we should be explicit about here. You know, I, I really appreciate and, and want those who are working in all those jobs we've talked about, just keeping stuff going, keeping food on the shelves, lights on, keeping packages moving, uh, you know, that those people are, essential right now and i think they're often in our society underappreciated and man we know right now we appreciate them so yes do what you can to give some extra cash to folks who can use it and try to be as supportive as possible as you can to people who um who are doing the things that are necessary to keep life going Melissa, greetings. Thank you for advising everyone to follow the current restrictions 10 years ago. I was a healthy mother with a 3-month-old baby. I was exposed to H1N1 at church or our older kids' school. I got H1N1 and it developed into a serious pneumonia and nearly killed me before my sister and husband got me to the hospital. It took me two years to recover, and I still have damaged lungs. I was lucky my friend, a very healthy outdoors woman who lives out west, got H1N1 and pneumonia and spent a month in ICU on a ventilator. She still has severely damaged lungs and nerve damage. It was a miracle she recovered. Please keep urging people to think before they expose others. The current advice isn't perfect, but it's worth a grace period before we result, uh, re revert to healthy skepticism. Yeah, Melissa, um, I, I think that, you know, that, that's, that's where I've been. I think that the 15 days, you know, we, we, we comply with the 15 days, but... They've been saying it's 15 days, I assume, because after 15 days, they're going to let people start going back to work and start doing their jobs again. Or else, why is it just the 15 days? 
And this, this is where, you know, the, the what comes next part of this conversation, I think, is where I'm trying to focus right now, because we, we know what we're supposed to do in the meantime. We're supposed to uh, uh, be on lockdown and stay home. Well, what comes next? Amy, thank you. I'm one of the ones who keeps showing up to work. I do food deliveries and work in a kitchen that makes healthy, organic food for home delivery. I feel such a great sense of purpose in what I do all the time, but your words of encouragement have, have meant so much to me. Well, Amy, thank you uh, for doing what you're doing. And yeah, I mean, every time now, you know, I and I, I just, you know, I, I can get groceries, but I've been ordering out. It's not good for my waistline, but who cares? I've been ordering out more than I usually do because those there aren't that many businesses, even in New York, that are still doing takeout and delivery. The number dwindles every day. So I want to try to get, you know, I want to try to give them money, keep myself fed, obviously. Um, and the people that are still doing that. And also, it's yes, it's the sustenance. It's the food. It's it's making sure that we don't have, you know, people that are, are hungry in addition to all the other problems we have right now. But it's also the lessening of the anxiety and the sense of normalcy that comes from having food like your delivery service brought to people. You know, we need this stuff. We need this right now. Uh, Kathleen, now that we're cooped up, can you give out a list of reading recommendations? All right, Kathleen. Um, you know what I will do right now, actually, just because we're we're here, we're in roll call and I, I don't want to keep saying, oh, I will do this and oh, I will do that because then OSS and Stotes and some of the others will yell at me uh, as they're right to do sometimes because I just I, it's not that I ever don't want to do what I say. I just get delayed with things because I'm trying uh, very hard. I'm trying to see if I can find my my Kindle list. Because that would be the single best. Or here, I can even just pull it up. I can pull it up on my, on my phone. I'll do that. So you want to know things that I recommend you read right now if you're just looking for... Here we go, team. Buck is going to pull uh, a whole bunch from the library. And here's, here's what we got. Um, I've mentioned recently Billion Dollar Whale by Tom Wright and Bradley Hope. Um... The Sea Wolves, A History of the Vikings, very good. Endurance by Alfred Lansing. Uh, the Hundred Year Marathon by Michael Pillsbury. Let's see. The Lost City of the Monkey God by Douglas uh, Prest. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Justice on Trial, my friend Molly Hemingway. Darwin's Doubt, Stephen Meyer. Bad Blood, John Carreyrou. Salt, Mark Kurlansky. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to skip past the, the overly academic ones. Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Yuval Noah Harari. And let's see what else we have here. Um, I, I think that's a pretty good Outlaw Platoon by my friend Sean Parnell. Uh, Escape from Camp 14. That's pretty depressing, though. What else do we have here? A lot of this is stuff that I read for work. You know, I don't think a lot of you are really going to get into eugenics and other evils by G.K. Chesterton, although maybe. If you've never read Bram Stoker's Dracula, read the novel. It's amazing. Uh, let's see what else we have in the list here. Um I've, uh, sorry, I told you 1984, Animal Farm. Very, very good. Whitaker Chambers, Witness. 
Great book. Read that one. Six Frigates, if you want some military history. Ian Toll, fantastic book. Uh, Adrian Goldsworthy, How Rome Fell. Might be a little scary to read right now, but you could definitely do that one. If you've never read it before, Friedrich Hayek, The Road to Serfdom. It's a little dense, but it's good. Um, Chris Kyle, American Sniper. Certainly worth it if you've never read that one. Um, What else do I have in here? Rules for Radicals, Saul Linsky. If you've never read that one, definitely read that one. The New Nobility, The Restoration of Russia... Uh, of Russia state's uh, security and the enduring legacy of the KGB. Very, very good. And yeah, there you go. So there's a whole, the Persian puzzle, Kenneth Pollack, the power broker, Robert Caro, the second world wars by Victor Davis Hanson, all great books. All right. So I gave you those of you, if you, if you're listening to this on radio, go back and grab this part of that. First of all, you should be subscribed hopefully to the podcast anyway. But I just gave you, those are enough books. Those will last you months, okay? Those are all really, really good books. So now I've at least given you that list. And uh, if there's other lists, I'll, I'll post them. But so now I, I've done what I said I would do. I've given you a list of, of books to check out, books to read. So there you go. Um, let's see what we have here now. I, I've, I got a little bit, uh, whoops, I got... A little bit caught up in that. And now I've got to go back into more roll call. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right. Now we've got Sean. Hey, Buck. I've been a fan since the Blaze days and love the podcast. Keep up the great work. I'm one of those who thinks this virus is an accidental leak from the bioweapons lab in Wuhan. It just seems too coincidental. I would probably think otherwise if the Chinese had not reacted like they did by welding people in apartment buildings, withholding details on the strain, etc. I may have missed it, but I haven't heard you debunk this theory at length. I would love to hear CIA analyst Buck in action during this. Uh, Sean, um, I don't look. I, I the, the truth is, you know, one of the first being any kind of analyst, but certainly being a national security analyst, if you're going to be a good one, you got to admit what you don't know. And I just I don't have any special insight or information about this bioweapons lab and the Institute of Virology in Wuhan, other than it's 10 miles from this wet market. But wet markets, remember, have been a site for zoonautical transmission from one animal to another for a long time. That's resulted in other pandemics, you know, SARS. And for those who are wondering, you know, about the naming of these things, even SARS, an acronym, uh, was considered offensive for a while in Hong Kong because SARS, Hong Kong, is called the Special Administrative Region, S-A-R. And so they didn't like that the disease was being called SARS because it had its outbreak in, in Asia. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I just don't have a good answer for you, my friend. I, I, don't, th- I don't think it was an, in- look, it's not an intentional uh, outbreak. I, that, that I do think we have to put aside, but... You know, we'll see well, in terms of whether it broke out of that lab accidentally. Could be. I don't think so, but I can't tell you no. They've lost viruses before. That's established. That's fact. So how do we know that this one didn't, you know, think of how much now you start to crunch the numbers. How many wet markets operate in China? How much of that is, you know, how, how much how many times does that happen? How many people interact with that on a daily basis? 
And now all of a sudden this, you know, you could say the numbers indicate that eventually this would happen in one of these wet markets. Okay, but you could also say, well, this has been going on for years, millions and millions of times, and this hasn't happened. So why did it happen now? Two ways to look at it. David, Buck, I was in Israel during the Gulf War in 1991 of January, and literally the entire country was on lockdown for a month. No cars on the road, nothing. They came out all right. Just spreading a little hope out there to all those who worry about this destroying our economy. It won't. Israel actually emerged stronger, um, and they have nearly as strong an economy as we do now. Shields high. Uh, well, David, the thing about that was everybody... Now, first of all, thank you for, for giving us some optimism here. It's really appreciated. Um, everyone looking at this now could say, well, hold on a second. If, if, we knew, if we knew as a country that we were going to be locked down for a finite period of time and that we we're fighting a human enemy, I think we could handle that. Right now, what we're dealing with is the uncertainty of the duration of the lockdown, and that has impact on the economy in ways that are, it's very hard to predict, very hard to understand where this all goes. Lori, uh, Texas has no state income tax, but really high property tax. Love your show. Uh, interesting to hear about life in big cities during these unusual times. Well, thank you, Lori. Yeah, I, I, I knew that about Texas, so I hadn't brought up recently. I know they have no state income tax, but they got high property taxes. But uh, still, uh, it would be nice to avoid that state income tax. Doug, new to your show, but not your message. I'm a 47-year-old country boy from Alabama trying to get myself and my mother, who is 76, through coronavirus meltdown. Truth be told, she's in better shape than I am. Our parents are tough cookies indeed. My father has gone on to his great reward, but his memory is fresh in my mind. He taught me to hunt, grow food, and use my common sense. I hope you make it through all the craziness in the Big Apple up there. I say rosaries for us all. Shields up. God bless. Doug, thank you, man. Thank you for just writing in a, a kind message of solidarity with the rest of the team, with me. And, you know, God bless you and your mom. And I'm sure, you know, you guys are going to make it through just fine. And we need to rally to each other so much right now. And, and I, I'm a huge believer in that. Brandon, wanted to remind you about us longshoremen keeping the trade goods coming and going out here. Thanks for all you do, Buck. Uh, yeah, absolutely, Brandon. Uh, you know, I, I can't think of all the jobs or rather, you know, extemporaneously, I wouldn't be able to name all the jobs that are right now keeping us keeping us alive, basically keeping us going. But absolutely, longshoremen, anybody who's involved in the movement of goods and whatever services are still out there right now, everyone who's involved in making sure there's there's product in the stores, food on the shelves, you know, milk in the in the dairy aisle, bread in the bread aisle, whatever, uh, you know, they're doing a tremendous service for all of us because they could stay home, too. Right. They could be like, look, I, I know I, I need the paycheck, but I'm going to stay home for a few weeks and just see what goes on. Imagine if everybody who worked in a grocery store did that right now. I don't want to be exposed to the virus. I don't want any risk. OK, uh, that would be really scary for all the rest of us so everybody out there longshoremen truckers you know ups drivers uh grocery store clerks uh, people that are showing up you know as essential personnel for uh the utility companies you know making sure the water trash garbage men uh you know trash collection garbage men you know all these different roles uh so important to us right now and you know, you guys are, and gals, 
Do I have to say that or can I just say you guys and I'm not going to get in trouble? But, you know, you folks are keeping this country going when we really need you to keep us going. And we all greatly appreciate it. Uh, that's going to be the show for today, everybody. I'm really hoping tomorrow, you know, the president will have a press conference. We'll have some good news to share. And that would be really nice. Uh, please do give me your thoughts on what else you want to hear day in and day out here, because we're going to be in this for certainly a while. And I want you to get the most out of this show as you possibly can. So if you want me to just totally divert from coronavirus entirely for the third hour, other than roll call, speak out, let me know. I'm here to serve all of you. God bless, team. Take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. Talk to you tomorrow. Shields high.